right, I'm back with Ted Oakley of Oxbow Advisors. Ted, it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for making the time. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. And a place I want to start is right here. We've watched a handful of somewhat unprecedented decisions come out of Washington in relation to this hot war in Europe. And my question for you is, from your perspective, were these a bit too aggressive and maybe a bit too short-sighted in relation to how the rest of the world will now view U.S. policy and U.S. handling of U.S. dollar reserves? Well, you know, Jay, I think the number one thing was when they uh, basically confiscated you know, reserves because that really changed things a lot. And you can see it because all of a sudden, you know, the rule goes all the way down and comes all the way back. And they told everybody, hey, we'll sell you some energy, but you're going to have to pay for it rubles. And, and then you have, you have a number of smaller countries too that, you know, are saying, you know, maybe, maybe we shift away from that a little bit. And I'm, I'm noticing number one, that's the number one thing. The second thing is that, uh, you know, the, obviously their thinking is that, you know, I think they're missing the point in Washington on this and that from an energy standpoint, uh, there's so many things they could have done domestically to change things. And then they come with this gasoline tax holiday, which is really a joke, actually, if you want to get right down to it, because when you, when you have a shortage of something, the last thing you want to do is encourage people to use more of it. And lower prices do that. And so, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, some of that stuff does it. But I think that from a policy standpoint, that's where it happens to be. I just think that I think they're buying the dollar because things are really, really unsettled right now. I don't think it has so much that they have so much confidence in uh, in our policy making. I'll put it that way. Got it. Now, you know, you mentioned something there, the gas tax holiday and how this is really it's lip service, right? It doesn't solve anything. Historically, I don't believe gas tax holidays have ever solved energy crises, but it pacifies the voter base temporarily. Right. And that's what drives the majority of political decisions. And I wonder, you know, that's all well and good until you end up with a real crisis like we're in now. And then you want true leadership with a strong backbone. And I don't see that in, in my country. And I don't know about yours either. What do you think? Well, we certainly don't have it because if you think about it, okay, I'll just take energy as an example. I mean, what we're saying to the energy companies is, look, um, we hate you. We really do hate you, but we want you around for the next four or five years. <laughs> right. And by the way, if you make a bunch of money, we're going to tax you to death. And so you're, you know, that's that's sort of the policy, okay? And so and then what happens with all of that is, you you decrease all incentives to fine production, and including which twenty five percent of it's offshore, you cut that out. You do all these negative things, and then you want to blame it on somebody overseas when you had a chance to really do a lot of work on that yourself. I mean, there's so many things we could have done in that regard. And, and I think I think the letter from the Chevron CEO this week to the administration three days ago, I think that was an important letter to read because it basically says what most of those companies should say. Can you highlight some of that? I didn't see that letter. So what, what struck you? Uh, well, I thought the CEO wrote a really great letter into in the administration. And because what, what, what it said, it was printed up quite a bit, but, it, but he basically said, look, you know what? We've been vilified. You've heard our employees. We've got, I, I'm, I'm quoting here. I think I'm quoting 37, 38,000 employees. You've heard employees, you've heard the company. You've heard our ability to produce. 
and then then all of a sudden and then you start blaming us for something you did and our our request now is look if you really want to fix things here why don't you work with us instead of working against us and then blaming us for something that you actually started i thought it was a great letter and i think you know a lot of the one the big oils number of them have just rolled over and played dead but they shouldn't have what are your thoughts on on this energy crisis either accelerating or decelerating the shift to renewables is this a boon because countries are going to look to expedite that process or is this you know handcuff a handful of countries in europe specifically that don't really have a lot of options now but maybe to go back to coal which is what they've been telling their populace we'd never do again for a long time but what are your thoughts on the energy transition in relation to this crisis you know, Jenny, the, one of the problems in the world, if you look at the world, is that so many parts of the world only have combustible energy. They, they don't have electricity, and they don't have much electricity anyway. Mm. And so, you know, we're fortunate in the United States and that we have so, much, so many resources of different things. And we tend to get myopic to think, okay, if we can fix it here, we can fix it everywhere, which is obviously not the case that's going to happen. And so I, I think... Uh, I think this entire green, and don't, I'm not knocking this, I'm just trying to give you an opinion, but I think this entire green ESG stuff, all of that stuff um, has been pushed out so far, all of a sudden they're having to back off because it's not going to work for people on doing day-to-day -day stuff. And, and I, I think that's where we are. They don't want to admit it, but I think that's where we are. Okay, okay. Now I have, I have a couple of questions from readers of my newsletter who um, wrote a very similar letter I received, received from two different people. Uh, they both sold their companies about two months ago and big wins, right? Both are at the place now where they can choose, they could elect to retire should they see fit. They feel more concerned than ever because for the first time in their life, they're sitting on a pile of cash, but they have zero income and they can't see a safe place for that pile of cash. And the question now becomes, you know, how do I preserve the wealth that is supposed to last me for the remainder of my years? And, I, you know, both asked, is it, is it time to go back into the market? We're looking at these massively depressed prices. And, you know, this could be the opportunity of a lifetime. And I'm saying, like, pump the brakes on that. I don't think so. But what do you think, Ted? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, I just, uh, I just finished my fourth edition after 25 years of writing this one book. I've written books, but entitled you sold your company get ready for change but what we you know we work we put for 35 years we work with business owners that have sold companies and one of the things we find is that really precarious times like we are in right now i think you just gave them great advice jay and i'll tell you why what happens with people when they sell these companies uh, particularly with business owners they think they have to get the cash working because they always mm -hmm. had it working in their companies. Mm -hmm. And it, that's the mindset, you know, they're winners. They always been winners and that's how they think it's a winner. Well, now's not a time to really be trying to win. You need to be trying to preserve. Mm -hmm. And what we've done, and we have business owners that come in every other week, basically. And what we try to tell them is, especially the last four or five months is look, we're going to go extremely slow with your investing, but we're going to be extremely safe too. So, it's a different time. There'll be a place for them where they can get more aggressive, but they can make, uh, may probably pick one of the greatest times to sell their companies, but they pick probably one of the worst of times to start an investment process. Yeah, I love that because it's just important to 
decide if you're going to play defense or if you're going to play offense and stick to that game plan. I'm with you. I think it's a defensive game for the foreseeable future, but it's seductive, right? If you've been looking at the equities market and these prices are depressed and you look at, I mean, there's been some extreme examples like Zoom and Peloton, the real COVID winners, but you know, everything's down from, from that to Starbucks, right? Uh, I see this as like the market crash hasn't really happened yet. This has been a very slow but consistent and somewhat organized sell-off that's gotten us here. But that, that panic selling, I don't know if that's occurred yet. And so maybe the real crash, if there is, is still yet to come. But what do you think about that? Well, I think what happens, and speaking about those business owners too, they always think that that was the last train out. And I always try to tell them, hey, I've been around a long time. <laughs> There's a lot of trains. But to answer your question on that too, here's the thing. Uh, this is the first worst six-month start, okay, since 1962. That's a long time. And right. that usually is a harbinger of what's going to be coming later on. You don't just do that and then finish and we're good to go. And I think people need to keep that in mind. And one of the things I usually see at lows over the years, I've always noticed this, Jay, is that people get disgusted at the lows. Like you, if you say stock, they don't even like you. Mm. <laughs> so we're not to that point. What I see now are people trying to catch the bottoms. Yes, you know, yes. They're, they're buying some puts to protect themselves. And then they're trying to find bottoms on the stocks. They buy them and then look up three weeks later and they're, you know, they're flat to down. And we have, but we haven't, we haven't wrung them out yet. We have to get to the point to where they're like, oh man, I need to liquidate. <laughs> we're not like, we just haven't gotten there. But it's probably coming because you're right. That retail tsunami of, oh man, I need to liquidate. Uh, I expect that to be a bit of a sharper decline, a bit of a scarier drop. And like I said, the markets come off a ton and, and yeah, a lot, right? Massive wealth has been destroyed, but not in any one day or one fell swoop. It's been very consistent and almost like an organized sell-off. So, okay. Well, you know, uh, on that subject too, I just will tell you, not to interrupt, but I, uh, one of my old friends, 82 years old, actually has been in the business, one of the best people in the industry in Chicago, um, has always basically said, and I agree with him, that when you get to the end of a move down, uh, the last three or four days, that capitulation start right there, is about 20 or 25% of the whole move. And right. so, you there know, we haven't, we haven't seen that yet. So you'll, you'll know it when it, when they're really scared and the you know, margin calls are flying. Yeah. Had yeah. very few margin calls so far. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm glad, you know, I was excited that I was talking to you this week when I got these two questions, because I know this is, you know, one of your areas of expertise, what are some defensive plays that you're recommending for your clients right now? They, maybe they just got the exit. They are sitting on a bit of cash for the first time in their life. They're cash rich, unemployed, and they're trying to plan their life accordingly. Well, one of the things we tell them is that you've had, you're going to have to, to live to play another day. And so there's a survival piece of that that goes on. And so we always have, we always have some, what we call peace of mind money. And right now we have more of it. Uh, one of the things they'll find is that they can look at the six-month to two-year treasury rates, even the CD rates now, and they're really they're really the best they've been in a long, long time. I mean, you're, you're getting up at two and a half, in some cases, uh, to two-year, you know, at three percent plus. That that's a great place to park some money for the time being. I, I know they're saying, well, I'm not keeping up inflation. You're not in the short run, but you're giving yourself a chance to play later on. And the, the other side of that is that, and 
I would go a little slower on this, but we, we really like, um, you know, we like places we can park and get a lot of cash flow. One of those is a gas pipelines. We're not as heavy as we were, say, four or five months ago, but still, you know, they're paying seven to eight percent, in some cases nine. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we see we see a lot in the preferreds. I mean, the preferred market has been hit because the bond market was hit. However, a lot we have a number of convertible preferreds that are paying six and a half, in some cases, six and three quarter percent uh, qualified dividend types. You, mm-hmm. There's places to park money where you're not going to have to worry about uh, a significant, you know, you, you, they may sell off some. I'm not saying they wouldn't, but nothing like what the stock market has done. I looked at the um, Investors Business Daily Mutual Fund Index last Monday. It's down 33 for the year. Now, that's 20 of the really high growth mutual funds, you know. Right. And so you've got to guard against that kind of thing because if it's fresh money right now and you get down 40 or 50 points, you will be a very depressed former business owner, I promise you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, and I, I, I can empathize. I mean, it's, it's a whole new problem that these individuals are going, going through and I've had some close friends in the same scenario. I mean, that's why organizations like tiger 21 exist, right? Because you get out of the business, you're sitting on cash entrepreneurs make horrible investors. In my experience, you know, successful entrepreneurs are the perpetual optimists, right? I can always figure out a way to make this work. Whereas the best investors are skeptics. It's opposite, right? But they don't, skills don't translate. Um, not immediately anyways. Okay. So talk, talk to my, uh, the other half of my audience. They're not, they didn't just exit their company. They're not sitting on a ton of liquidity, but they've got strong income, right? And they're looking for maybe some areas where they could begin to dollar cost average into, they want to sort of set it and forget it and immaterial amount of cash for the next five, 10 years. Where are you looking? Where's that, where's that growth potential over the sort of five, 10 year time horizon, Ted? Well, I think the next five to 10 years will be different than the last. You know, if you look, obviously, you know, it's been the really big tech stocks that drove the, really drove the train in the last five years. But I think mm-hmm. you're going to have to have a mix the next five years. You're going to have to have some materials. You have to have some energy. I think you're going to have to have some commodity-based companies. I'm, I'm talking about maybe some timber, maybe some fertilizer, that type of thing. But then you mix that in with technology. Technology will always be there. The problem is it, we, we got so high in technology price-wise, we, you know, we're two standard deviations above the norm. So um, even, and an example was Cisco back in 1999, early 2000, $82 a share. It's still not 82 today. Good company, by the way. Um, but you, know, you, have to be, you have to know what to buy but more, and when to buy, it, but more important, what price. You know, yeah, you can have a yeah. great company, you pay the wrong price and you're stuck. And I think you're going to have to, what you should do in a portfolio is really measure what you're buying. Don't just buy the index, but buy things that you think will weather a 10 years and have, you know, some cash payouts that'll increase from dividend standpoint. So there's a number that that's what, to me, you have to look at the next 10 years. Okay. Okay. Appreciate that. Now, um, language coming out of the, out of the, out of the Fed chair. Uh, from Powell recently has been acknowledgement that they might have to inspire recession in order to fix inflation. Do you think they have the goal to stick with the policy of increasing rates as they plan to? If so, for how long? I mean, I I know Powell's come out and said he's going to follow Volcker's playbook. It's easy to say that, right? There's a reason the Powell pivots become an internet meme, right? So 
What's your forecast there, Ted? You know, how long could they stick to this game plan before tanking the own economy and swallowing that when they're looking at November thinking, you know, we got to be in favor with the population here? You know, Jay, I, if you had asked me that a year ago, I would have said they probably didn't have the fortitude. I always said this to do it. Um, but what's changed about it is, is that this came on and it came on really strong as inflation side. I think, and particularly Powell, I think, I don't know what's in the man's head, but I just think it looks like this. And that is, look, we've had 40 years of disinflation and lower inflation, and we are not going to be the group that sinks the ship here, okay? I think that, and I think that's what people are missing, uh, that they probably have a greater desire to do that now than, uh, than people probably estimate. I think people think, well, you know, they're going to pivot here soon. We'll get a slowing economy and, and boom, you know, we pivot everything back to normal. Not really. I mean, if you, even if you went from 8%, eight and a half or nine down to five or six inflation, I think they'll still be beating on it, you know, trying to get it down. And that's where people are missing this particular move. They seem more hard-headed now to us, at least that they want it down, not just because of the election, because they don't want to be remembered as the Fed that let it run wild on them. Hmm. And I think that's where they are right now. What kind of what kind of leader does the United States need right now? Well, first of all, we need a younger one, in my opinion. Uh, I think I think what's happened in this country is uh, a lot of people my age and older and that whole group, they're they, they, you have to shift lower. We need to get people in their, you know, in their late forties, fifties, uh, in government. Number one, you need a lot of energy, uh, personal energy, you know, working energy type energy, yeah, uh, yeah. to, to really tackle these big problems. Secondly, you need new ideas. You need to be willing to do things. And we have the same old, same old we've had for like 30 years or 40 years, and it's just worn out. And, Nobody cares anything about, the, I think, the general populace. Um, and so I think people are looking at that and they're pretty fed up with it. And, and they know that we need, we need some a situation where people can come in with a lot of energy, new ideas, and they don't mind tackling it. And, you know, and they're willing to stand up and do some things correctly. Now, we're always going to have politics, don't get me wrong, but We've gotten to a point to where you think about the average age of these people in these two houses uh, that it control the controlling groups for. Uh -huh. It's unbelievable. It's like grandparents. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, hey, we need to move on here. We need something. And I think we, we have to now. And so hopefully that's the direction we'll go. Interesting. You know, and I, I tend to think that we tend to, we pendulum, you know, and so if we're looking at super, well, how old's Biden now? Like, it, yeah, I get what you're saying. And I, I wonder, but the question I have is like, what's going to inspire the next generation to enter politics? Because out of all the paths you could take to me, it looks like the worst. I mean, it, it's like a utter disruption of any sort of personal life, the infighting and just, you know, I had a good friend run for local office, mayor of a Canadian city, right? N not anything major yet during the election, he still had two private eyes tailing him from the opposition party trying to extort him along the way. This is a local mayoral election yeah. and the fighting is so dirty, you know, and as an entrepreneur, like I have competitors and, and, you know, yes, we're competitive, but the fighting is, is at a completely different level in politics. It's like the gloves are completely off. 
no holds barred, anything goes, which is a disgrace for the up and coming generation to look at our leaders and say, you know, that's who we're supposed to follow here, right? There's, anyways, I mean, it, it's, it's a bigger thing, but I wonder what's going to inspire anybody to, to chase that office down if they have their best interest in mind. Well, if you look at the latest Pew research, uh, I believe Pew came out with this, that over 50% of the people now claim to be independents, which wouldn't be a bad idea because what happens is you have these two parties and they both do extreme things that the normal group, the larger groups don't really want. It's like yeah, these yeah. extremities going on. They're like, wait, if you'll just run things normal and try to keep business as usual, let people do, you know, don't get hung up on so many extremities, you'll be okay. But that's not what we're doing. You know, these, these, these extreme parties, they don't use any common sense. And so I think uh, what's going to happen eventually is that you will have enough voters rise up to where you'll start to push that back into the system. I hope you do anyway. Um, I hope, um, if, I know you know uh, Neil Howe, and if, if Neil Howe's fourth turning comes about, then uh, maybe that first turning will bring, uh, will bring that on, I hope for sure. Hmm. You know, my prediction for the candidate that would run um, after Trump was that we'd get a general, some, some veteran who would run for patriotic reasons, right? Somebody who, I guess, has put their life on the line and, and maybe the, the public could look to you as a, as a trustworthy figure. And that hasn't happened. I was a bit surprised, but um, any, any thoughts or comments on that, Ted? Well, the last time it happened was Dwight Eisenhower, but uh, and he was obviously a well-liked president. But it was a different time. That was that what that was what Neil Howe would call the first turning during that period in the fifties. But uh, it was a different, you know, that's a different time. I I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, there's certain people that are really uh, sort of against the military too. Not me. I'm obviously a veteran, but I but I the the point I I don't know. I I can't really comment on that. It could could very well work. I mean, it could very well work. I think people distrust though. I think you're right on that, that they had tremendous distrust of all facets of government right now. And it would be so nice just to have a straight shooter. You know, I, <laughs> I had the pleasure of interviewing the 22nd prime minister of Canada at my conference last month in Vancouver, prime minister Harper. And uh, it was so refreshing to speak to a politician who answers your questions directly. You know, you ask a question oh, yeah. and you get the answer. And yes, he's long out of office, you know, no reason to, to sway certain directions on issues, but he's always that way. You know, his biggest critique when he was in office was that he's too boring. And what a lovely critique to have, right, for really? a politician. Just yeah, somebody who does what they say they're going to do. <laughs> you know, it's always my, my friends that uh, don't want term limits. Their answer is always, we'll never get anything done. And I'm like, Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the okay. strength. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the strength of the U.S. Constitution, right? It limits the power of the government, makes it really tough for anybody to get anything done, which puts the power in theory and in the hands of the people. Look, Ted, this has been super fun. I, I love having you on. Thanks so much for making the time. Um, I appreciate you coming back. All right, Jay. Thanks a lot. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.